Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the 15th episode of Y2K and Autobiography. This is Peter Diager, your host. The title of this session is The Question of Italy. Right at the very beginning of this podcast, I made a big promise, and I promised that I would be as objective as possible as we looked back on Y2K. So far, to be quite honest, that's been very, very easy to do. All I have to do is tell the facts. Well, this is where that gets difficult. We're going to talk about Italy and why Italy is an issue and why it's a topic. It could also be the question of Japan. It could be the question of Russia and a couple of other places. Why this topic? Well, back when Y2K occurred, when the year 2000 came to pass, Italy suffered, well, didn't suffer. It had no noticeable problems at all. Even I, who was tied into, hooked into the world news reporting of this and people reporting to me problems from all over the world, and there were many, you know, 25,000 at least problems were reported. Italy didn't have any, nor did Russia, nor did Japan. So what went on? And it's a legitimate question. See, here's the thing. I know we had a problem. How do I know that? Because we tested systems and they failed miserably. And we also said that Italy would have problems. We expected Italy to have problems. Italy, again, is a stand-in for a couple of the other country names as well. On January the 6th, I decided to write an article to try and figure out, in my own mind, as to what went on. And that article is entitled, The Question of Italy and Analysis. It was written on January the 6th, very, very soon after. And to be honest, I haven't taken a look back at it since then. I've thought about the issue for years. And looking back at the article, well, it highlighted a couple of places where we got it totally wrong. When I say we, I mean myself and a couple of other uh, consultants around the world including places like Gartner. We got Italy incorrect. Our analysis was wrong, and it was wrong for some basic reasons. And as you'll see in the article, uh, we got it wrong there too. We, in this case, I. There was no other one writing that article. It was me. I got the analysis wrong as well. And you'll see a particular point. Now, there are a couple of times in the article I'm going to make an annotation. And this will be the sound that you hear when I do that. And that won't happen too often, but it will be there. And at the end of the article, after I've read it out, what I'll do is I'll take another stab at what happened in Italy and where we got it wrong, because there's no denying it. We got it wrong. Got a lot of stuff right over the decade. But in a couple of particular areas, we made some mistakes. And we'll talk about why those mistakes were made, because I think I have an understanding of where our calculations and analysis went awry. So, let's start with the article, and I'll read it straight through. Like I said, with a couple of annotations, and there will be a sound to indicate, indicate that that was not in the article. That's some commentary I'm making now. So, let's start. Question of Italy, an analysis. Peter Diager, January the 6th, year 2000. Like yourself and everyone else, I am trying to understand what happened. While it is still too early to be doing this analysis, month-end processing must still take place, I find myself compelled to provide some answers to the legitimate question, why were places like Italy not impacted by Y2K? The question goes deeper than just why Italy and others escaped the problem. 
The other part of the question is that why I and everyone else who looked at the problem are so adamant that the problem was real and that we took the correct and proper action. You could place a gun to my head and threaten to pull the trigger unless I told you the truth that the problem was not real, and I would steadfastly refuse. I know with every fiber of my being that we were right. Nothing can shake me from that belief. And therein lies the glaring contradiction I struggle with. My view of the problem is contradicted by a fact I cannot refute and make no attempt to. Italy has seen no significant effects. Nor would I even suggest for a second that there is a significant enough difference between how Italy and Canada, U USA, UK do computing to account for the conundrum. This sentence itself is the pivot point. And I'll give you a hint, a spoiler. That statement is incorrect. And what I will do at the end is come back to that particular statement and explain why I was so fundamentally wrong with that statement. There is an answer to this. There has to be. The world does not allow contradiction to exist. Like you and others, I am groping towards understanding. What I am going to offer here is my first attempt at an explanation, an explanation which must fit all the facts as we know them and become obviously true to any fair-minded reader. While the media attacks are disheartening, the contradiction broiling in my mind is driving me insane. The search for truth is now a purely personal matter. Here goes. We do know some very simple facts which cannot be denied. We have a pervasive habit of storing the year with only two digits. This habit is worldwide. Point two. There exist date constructs which perform calculations and comparisons on two-digit dates. This is nothing more than an observation of existence. It holds true in code all around the world. Point three. If these date constructs operate across the 99-00 boundary, then they provide inaccurate results. This is a key point. If the constructs are faced with 99-00 data, they fail. The key word here is if. Canada, USA, UK spend an awful lot of money to fix Y2K and avoid problems. Italy spent very little, and there is no evidence that they have more problems than the above countries. The statement, Italy spent very little, could be a misjudgment on our part. However, I will assume the statements to be true. All the evidence suggests that Italy ignored this problem. Okay, with all of this in front of us, how do we reconcile the contradiction? Let's examine a typical company with, say, 50 million lines of code. The Y2K issue is raised at this company, and they decide to see if they are affected by the problem. A very cursory examination will verify they use two-digit years. Fact number one confirmed. This can be confirmed in five minutes. You need only examine the data definition area of practically any COBOL program. A further examination verifies a pervasive dependency on the date constructs. Fact two confirmed. This can be confirmed in five minutes. You need only examine the code of practically any program. So far, we have not demonstrated this, prob this company has a Y2K problem. We have demonstrated that the potential for a problem exists. The next question we have to ask and then answer is, can we confirm that the constructs in question will face the 9900 boundary? That is a difficult question to answer. First, let's recognize that facing the 9900 boundary is not an unreasonable expectation. Example, 
Money deposited in 1999 drawing interest in 2000 requires a time period calculation which crosses the boundary. An invoice due for payment in 1999 but paid late in 2000 requires a date comparison. Coming up with examples of date boundary crossings are exceedingly simple. These do not require huge leaps of faith or even great intelligence. And, if we create test data that creates these examples for our programs, they will, without question, fail. However, there is something important to remember about test data. It is not real data in the sense that it is contrived to achieve a particular goal. It might never actually occur in the normal course of business. Despite these test results, we have not yet determined if the 50 million lines of code we depend upon will actually encounter this problem during the normal course of business. There is another complicating factor. Identifying all dates in these 50 million lines of code is almost impossible. The very best automated tools only achieve a 95% accuracy rate, which included both false positives and negatives. This means from the very start, any examination of the 50 million lines of code will be performed through a fuzzy lens. Any examination you perform will not examine every date. No matter how hard you try, you will not be able to state conclusively these 50 million lines of code will never result in date construct crossing the date boundary. Da, 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 da. Okay, let's summarize. Point one, the 50 million lines of code do rely on two-digit years. Point two, the 50 million lines of code do utilize the date constructs. Point three, if the date constructs encounter the date boundary, they will fail. Point four, we cannot easily, due to a lack of complete data on all the dates, and the complexity of 50 million lines of code determine if indeed we have a Y2K problem. So far, these are the hard facts. Where does the company with these 50 million lines of code go from here? They have three choices in front of them. First choice, they could go back to point number four and do what is necessary to find out exactly where this body of code will be affected by Y2K. This is an extraordinarily difficult and expensive task to accomplish prior to the actual failure. Choice two, they could decide to fix every instance of two-digit years wherever they could find them. This, while expensive, is significantly cheaper than option number one. It is also overkill. They would be changing many date constructs which would never have been faced with the date boundary of 9900. Option three, they could choose to do nothing. They could choose to adopt the strategy of fix on failure. The benefit of this strategy is that you don't have to search for the problems. They will make themselves known to you. The downside is that prior to failure, you have no idea what size of problems you might face or how long they would take to fix it or how many you will encounter. Strategy 1, fix only what you know will break, was adopted to some degree wherever possible. Programs which only printed the date were sometimes ignored. For the most part, however, the strategy was too expensive to implement and too susceptible to human error. It was, for the most part, an unacceptable strategy. The decision now boiled down to a choice between spend money and fix everything, or fix nothing and hope for the best. At this point, the decision rests partly upon the answer to the question, how many 99-00 boundary crossings can we expect to occur in our 50 million lines of code? Understand that at this point, to answer this question cannot be determined with any worthwhile accuracy. We are trying to predict a future event. It is all but impossible to sift through 50 million lines of code to determine exactly what will happen. 
We do know that the examples we create to demonstrate failure are not complicated examples. They are easily devised and do not strain the bounds of credulity. There is at this point in the analysis a reasonable expectation that there will be some problems, but no way to determine with any reliable degree of accuracy how many or how severe. Our decision also rests on how much risk we are willing to assume on behalf of our shareholders and stakeholders. If we decide to fix on failure, are we certain that when a failure occurs, we can fix it before the failure impacts our business? An honest answer to that question is no, we are not certain. Another question, are we certain that the number of failures we might encounter can be managed by our available resources? Again, the honest answer is no, we are not certain. No one can honestly answer yes to either of these two questions, any more than we can accurately determine how many problems we will encounter. The questions are basically the same. How many problems will we encounter? And the answer is, we don't know. So all this, so it all boils down to this final question. Given that if we know we use two-digit years, we utilize those constructs which will cause problems if faced with the 9900 boundary. The 9900 boundary crossings are not unreasonable situations. How many 9900 boundary crossings can we reasonably expect to occur in the normal day-to-day -day operation of 50 million lines of code? And are we willing to accept the risks associated with letting this unknown quantity of problems to occur and then fixing them after the fact? And this is exactly where, only with 2020 hindsight, can we determine we made our error in judgment. We made the decision, based upon everything we had discovered, that there would be enough 99-00 boundary crossings to make choosing Strategy 3 an example of gross negligence. Strategy 3 was the fix on failure. I could not in good conscience advise anyone to ignore the problem and only a worry about the problem when it occurs. I could not advise anyone to accept failure as a viable strategy, especially when I had no idea how large the failures would be. It turns out that there were fewer 99-00 boundary crossings than we feared. Countries that did nothing were faced with fewer problems than we expected. If we are to be convicted for refusing to accept an unacceptable risk, then so be it. But anyone who chooses to do so should have the decency to admit that the only reason we can be judged harshly at this point is with the impunity of 2020 hindsight. We chose the safer but more expensive path into the future. And that's the end of the article. There are so many things wrong with that article. I wrote it, like I said, six days after January the 1st, 2000. Now, a couple of things. I think one of the biggest ones is that original statement that I annotated right at the start. And seeking my docs and going back to it. Here it is. Nor would I even suggest for a second that there's a significant enough difference between how Italy and Canada, USA, UK do computing to account for the conundrum. That's the problem. There was a difference. Uh, it was a huge difference, one that we didn't factor in. There was also a matter of the information flow from these countries. Let's deal with the information flow first. When we were saying that we don't see any activity in Japan or Italy or Russia or a couple of other countries, what we are doing is relying on surveys that are being performed in the IT industry. And those surveys would be, let's say, um, they would be executed, run, sent out to people at the beginning of, say, 1999. 
It would then take three to six months for the results of those surveys to be made known, to be published, to be released. And if we took them at face value and said, well, in mid-1999, Italy's not doing anything, what we're really ignoring is the fact that between the time the survey was taken and the time Italy started to do something, there's a huge difference in the level of activity. The other thing we didn't take into account is that when tools were used later in the cycle, in other words, the tools available to fix Y2K, uh, let's say in 1996, uh, paled in comparison to the intelligence of the tools that were, were available to us in 1999. You could argue that waiting until the tools were developed and made better, made more productive, more effective, uh, by waiting to the end, you were actually saving money. Uh, eating a little bit more risk, because you don't know if the tools are going to get that much better. But if you waited till the end, the tools were better. None of these, though, really speak to the heart of what I think the issue really was. First off, Y2K was all about risk management. It was, we know there are problems in our code because we can identify them. In North America, Australia, we've had guests on who basically said, look, uh, management didn't believe us. We went in and ran a test, and basically the systems just turned turtle. They just rolled over and died. If we hadn't fixed it, we would have gone bankrupt. Those are undeniable. These are the problems that we fixed, the Y2K problems that occurred during testing, and we fixed. But a lot of the work that we did was to find out if a problem existed. good example, a very good example, I think, is the power industry, the entire energy grid industry. When I stood in front of an electrical conference where power generator people were in the room, and ask them in 1996, 1997, 1998, how many of you know if you have a Y2K problem? None of the hands went up. In other words, they had done no checking. They had no clue if they would be affected by Y2K. And to me, that's an unacceptable risk. And at that point, we pushed, and we pushed very, very hard that you go out into your systems and look and see if you have a problem. And then what happened was they found no problems. The energy industry found nothing significant. By all accounts, they found nothing significant. And this is one of those situations where if 10 com countries look at their electrical system and find no problems, and another two or three countries don't do anything at all, while we could chastise them for not checking their systems, reality, it turns out they didn't need to, because the other countries have done the legwork and determined that these types of systems are not affected. If Italy didn't check their electrical systems, and to the best of our knowledge, they did not, they benefit from the fact that the systems were good. There, there was a risk, but when you actually look to see how big the risk was, it didn't exist. So if you didn't check your electrical systems and nothing happened, well, that's what we expected in the end, really. This still doesn't get to the heart of the issue. The heart of the issue is this. Computing arose in North America, in England. That's where we were using Hollerith cards. The early days of computer development, system development, was in-house. 
someone dis- would decide, a bank or a telecommunications company would decide that they need to start using computers to solve their problems, and North America was first. They were the ones using Hall Earth cards. They were the ones, the legacy systems, that were really into using the two-digit years. When countries such as Italy and others started to come on board, they wouldn't be using Hall Earth cards. They'd be using later generation machines and storage devices, and therefore the memory constraints, which we all knew from the beginning would pose us problems, but it was problems far in the future, wouldn't be so prevalent. The other thing that we found out at the end, and this is where that statement that there is no significant difference between computing in Italy and versus the UK or Canada, it was fundamentally wrong. And that was this. In Italy, in other countries, in Europe, they were using package software more than anything else. They did not do it themselves, DIY. They did not write their own systems. They bought their systems. They figured, well, why should we spend the money writing these things? Let's just go to Bonn or SAP or any one of the other ERP systems out there and buy their package software. And if you're doing that, you don't have to do too much. I heard of not a single Bonn problem. In all the discussions I had with that organization, they found no Y2K problems at all. And when I had conversations with SAP, they only found one problem, to the best of my knowledge. Now, maybe there were other problems that they didn't tell anybody. Uh, the same might apply to Bonn. But then what they were doing is saying, okay, if we find a problem, it would be released in the next release. And if you are a company in Italy or anywhere else that is using packaged software, all you had to do was upgrade your software, which is a standard process. And as long as you're keeping your software up to date, you didn't have a problem. This is the problem that occurred with that FTP issue that came up in one of the discussions with one of the people we interviewed, where there was an update to the FTP protocol but they didn't install it. It was identified as being cosmetic. And when the FTT program, file transfer protocol program, was running to move data from their organization to the stock exchange, it was failing within a microsecond because it was comparing two dates. It took them an entire day to fix that problem. If they had installed the upgrade, they wouldn't have had a problem at all. And this, I think, and I suspect, because... I haven't done the final research. I have neither the time nor the resources to do that, to figure out exactly what was the level of computing in Italy, what percentage of them were packages. I've done some, and it suggests it was significantly more than North America, and that the upgrades that they went through solved their problem. We should have known better. Here's the mistake we made. We made the assumption that what we see around us is the same as everybody sees around them. And in a way, the criticism around Italy, where people point to Italy and say, because they didn't have a problem, we shouldn't have done anything, is exactly the same type of error. They're saying that the computing in Italy is exactly the same as the computing in North America. That's the mistake we made. We made the assumption that the problems we had would be evident over there as well. Fact of the matter is, 
computing does vary from one country to another, from one organization to another. And when we make the mistake of saying that which we see around us is the same everywhere else, that's where we get into some rather embarrassing mistakes. So that wasn't as painful as I thought it would be. We make mistakes. We made a mistake about Italy. And if you want to hang us for that, then by all means, by the rope. Folks, Italy was a mistake. They, they did some work. They had to do less than we did. If we're trying to avoid these mistakes again, the lesson learned here is that which we see around us is not the world we live in. It's only a part of us. Well, that's it, folks. I don't think you want to hear any more about Italy today. We're going to have James Larber back. Uh, he's been doing a couple of little inserts uh, fairly frequently now, the last couple of shows, and he's got another one this time around. This one's called the Carrington Event. So, James, over to you. Well, hello, Peter, and thanks for having me back. I'm really enjoying this, and I wanted to reach out and say thank you before we started into what is a Carrington Event. <clears throat> so, using that as a segue, uh, I first wanted to say, actually, that as I was researching this, it occurred to me that we may not want to hear about yet another looming risk in 2020, but it is a risk, and it is a fascinating story. And it's primarily focused on how science has identified the Carrington risk and how we're preparing to deal with it, because it is coming at some point in time in the future. So let's start back at the beginning. What is a Carrington event in the first place? <clears throat> well, a Carrington event in kind of technical jargon is a geomagnetic magnetic storm or a space storm resulting from a solar flare. So let's turn that into something that's a little more digestible. A solar storm in essence is an electrical current rushing through space, which originated from activity on the sun, that activity being called a solar flare. And I think that's enough to you know, outline the picture. So it sounds kind of spooky, but at the same time, it's not that hard to understand. We can relate it to the northern lights because that's what causes the northern lights. It's this electrical energy rushing at us from the sun as a result of the solar flare when it bounces off our protective magnetic shield that surrounds the Earth, it causes the northern lights. So getting back to where does the Carrington event name and where does the where did it start? Where did we start referring to it as the Carrington event? <clears throat> it's called the Carrington event because amateur astronomer Richard Carrington was observing sunspots back in 1859. And when he observed a solar flare, uh, he noticed that it was something different and he recorded it and he drew this little diagram of what it looked like. And then some small number of hours later, uh, there's different estimates of how many hours it was, but it was within 12, 24 hours. Later, there was uh, an enormous um, um, Northern Lights event that occurred and telegraph operators were well, telegraph machines, which are electrical current machines um, common in the day, 
uh, were affected and some telegraph operators were actually shocked from trying to use the machine because the surge of electricity that went through the system as a result of this Carrington event actually physically shocked them. Uh, some operators uh, got shocked, turned off their machines, and the machines continued to operate because even without a, a provided source of power, there was enough power rushing through the atmosphere that it was powered in the machines. So it was a really significant event and it got a lot of coverage and that's why it ultimately became named a Carrington event. So the question becomes what is the question to me becomes what is the risk of another event and unfortunately you might say yes there is a very real risk uh, solar flares do happen all the time uh, where there is a risk of impact is when a solar flare occurs which shoots off this electrical storm which happens to cross the path of our orbit and which is less common than solar flares themselves which happen all the time so there's two conditions that have to be met it has to be a large solar flare and it has to occur in a way that causes that rush of electricity shooting off into space to actually come uh, across our orbit as we pass that point in our orbit. So it's not super common, but it does happen about every 150 years or so statistically that a major storm crosses our path. And it does happen more frequently that a less major storm or a more minor storm crosses our path. And there's a couple of examples of that I'll be talking about soon. Uh, the science behind it is, uh, uh, the science behind the risk calculation is that uh, in 2014, um, a group uh, calculated a 12% risk of a Carrington level event occurring uh, within the next decade. So that's between 2014 and 2024, clearly. Uh, that group uh, uh, was led by Peter Riley of Predictive Science Inc. and it was a study done in 2014. At the uh, tail end of this uh, little presentation, I'll be giving a bunch of URL links if you want to read more because it is a fascinating story. Now, I said there's been two significant recent events. So let me just uh, touch on what those two are and that'll give an idea of the, how impactful this could be. A significant event one, in March of 1989, a small, smaller than original Carrington event, it was about half the size of, an orig of the original Carrington event <clears throat> in terms of magnitude, uh, hit and affected approximately 6 million um, people in Quebec. Um, for approximately nine hours because it shut down the power grid for most of Quebec, uh, which as I said, it's like it was half of the um, magnitude of the original Carrington event. And it did affect the Northern Lights and it affected, <clears throat> pardon me, other things as well, like it, it affected radio traffic and, and other things, but the, the most noticeable and significant impact was about 6 million customers lost electrical power for about nine hours in Quebec. Uh, the significant event number two that I came across was in 2012, there was a very similar Carrington event uh, storm that missed us by a week. And what that means is the way it occurred, it did cross Earth's orbit as it as it came out from the sun, but it came out 
um, a week before we cross that part of our orbit. So if this flare had occurred a week after it did, and we would have been right in the path of the solar storm that came out. And this particular one was a magnitude slightly bigger than the original Carrington event, which could have had huge impacts on us. So what is the worst case and best case scenario of when we ultimately get hit with one of these events? The worst case scenario estimates are that industrialized countries could suffer multi-billion, possibly multi-trillion dollar losses and impacts, which would come in the form of many months before all of the electrical services could be repaired. Uh, that means you know, transformers would get uh, disrupted to the point where they couldn't function anymore, uh, like major grid transformers. So they don't you know, keep those in stock by the time they uh, constructed replacements and put them in place and powered them up. Uh, to get everything back to where it was could take months, <clears throat> which of course is going to disrupt industry. It's going to disrupt everything. Uh, the best case scenario is that with all of these satellites that NASA and others have out there monitoring this kind of stuff, we have enough warning to be able to uh, power down these systems sufficiently that they would be able to absorb the impact of the electrical storm as it goes through our atmosphere much better and we would have much less damage uh, to the components of the electrical grid and therefore after the storm passes, we just turn it back uh, back to full power. So it's fascinating, comp um, it's a fascinating, um, what's the right word? <laughs> it's a fascinating prospect that this could actually happen. And in fact, uh, statistically, it will happen. It's just a matter of when and how much uh, warning we'll have because when it occurs and where it occurs and when the satellites pick it up, there could be days warning, there could be mere hours of warning. And it's going to be quite an event. So let's hope it doesn't happen in 2020 because we've had enough happen in 2020 already. So the warning strategy or the planning for the uh, the, the risk strategy planning is uh, give, a, give as much forewarning as possible. And the impact will be reduced as much as possible. In first world nations, that's going to be a little bit more manageable than in the second world and upcoming nations because they have not get the same degree of protections in their infrastructures as we do. So I want to close this off with, I have a couple of links that uh, will lead you to the research uh, articles that I used for this. They're all tiny URL links, so I don't have to read out the big, huge, long links. But if you start off all of these with the uh, tinyurl.com slash, you can reference a link I built called Carrington-Article. And there's another one, tinyurl.com slash carrington-nasa-news. Another would be tinyurl.com slash carrington-nasa-warning. Another would be tinyurl.com slash carrington-reuters. And the final one would be tinyurl.com slash carrington-abc-news. And if uh, you prefer, uh, please feel free to send me an email at james at jameslobber.com and I'll be happy to email you back these tiny URLs. And uh, if you wanna chat a little bit, uh, be happy to do that as well. So that's my little um, 
encapsulated what is a Carrington event presentation. And I'd like to hand it back to you, Peter. What do you think of the Carrington event? Fascinating or not? It's more than fascinating. It's a terrifying thing for the simple reason that we depend so much more now on circuits and electronics than we ever did before. When the first one came around, we noticed it only because of the telegraph machines. They, They went nuts. Uh, along comes a solar flare, and they're getting spiking currents on the, elect- on the telegraph wires. And that's why we noticed it. Uh, some of them were burnt out. Today we have transformers, we have small, small circuitry, we have cell phones, everything's electronic, and all the satellites up there. A really severe Carrington event, if it hit us smack on, would burn out most of these tiny little circuits. And switching it off really doesn't help. Because the current's still there, even if you've taken, you know, powered off your phone, the circuits are still there. Along comes the event. Basically, it powers itself up and overloads. Now, if you want to take a scary look at something similar, there's a book, a rather useful book and rather celebrated by William Forsten, F-O-R-S-T-C-H-E-N. It's entitled One Second After. It is not about a Carrington event. It is about an EMP, electromagnetic pulse, but as a weapon. And basically, North America is attacked with this EMP. Same result as a Carrington event if it's large enough. And what this book does is goes through all the consequences in day-to-day life as the days unfold after this event. And it's not pretty. The other issue that we have is, you know, with the warning systems, let's assume that one came in right now and the radio and the TV and everything start warning us, you know, shut down your electronics, shut down your electronics. Uh, That would mean shutting everything down, getting out of your cars, stopping your cars, landing all the planes. And with the way the world is right now, no one would pay attention, especially if it happened in 2020. We'd call it fake news and we'd go about our merry business and ignore everything. That's, again, the real issue. It's never a technical issue. It's always a people issue. So thanks for terrifying us. Thanks for (laughs) scaring the pants off us. And let's see if we can make it through the end of 2020 on a more cheerful note. Any final words, James? (laughs) Well, you're very welcome. I I enjoy terrifying people. It's kind of what I do. Not. Uh, But it is a reality, as you said. And when you were uh, giving your synopsis, it reminded me of one other thing. In the 1989 event, there were several satellites that actually tumbled out of control for several hours as a result of this half-strength Carrington event. Now, none of them crashed or incinerated uh, by re-entry, but they did tumble out of control for several hours until they were able to reconnect and uh, realign them. So that was a little tidbit that I thought I'd add in right at the end, just to ease the terror, if it would. Uh, update on <laughs> update on future podcasts. Uh, I want to thank you for inviting me onto this and uh, exposing me to this podcast environment because I've really enjoyed it. And it's uh, it's caused me to think about producing one myself, and I'm I'm moving forward on that. And I want to have a fairly wide spectrum, so I'll give you a quick idea. I, I'm really interested in future bleeding, what I call bleeding edge technology issues like superconductivity and uh, nanocomputing and uh, quantum computing and artificial intelligence and those kind of things. And there's a lot of fascinating stuff going on that doesn't hit mainstream news. So I thought I'd want to cover a lot of those topics in a future podcast. 
in episodes of a future podcast. I also have a training company which focuses on human communication in business and in life because, like it or not, we're all humans and we all have fairly fundamental reactionary systems which we use to interact with each other and it impacts everything. It impacts the way we interact on the social level with friends and family and equally it impacts the way we interact with coworkers at business and that impacts team performance and all the rest of it. So that's what we're all about there. And uh, I'd like to put on some episodes that give a little more, uh, more light to that subject matter. And I've also done project management for a long time. So things like organizational culture, change management, project management, are things that interest me tremendously and I generally tend to approach those as a, what is the impact on the people who are being affected by the change which is often as a result of the project and such. So that's kind of the, the large scope of where I'm, I'm planning on going um, with the, the continuing podcast and again I'd like to thank you for uh, exposing me to the medium so that uh, I had the idea uh, to continue and um, offering me all the support that you have. Uh, I've really enjoyed it. And uh, what's the third time I say? Thank you once again, Peter. It's been, uh, it's been a real pleasure. <laughs> You're welcome, Guy. Uh, folks, this has been another episode of Y2K, an autobiography podcast. We're going to have about, I think, two more episodes. We're going to have one where I'm going to talk not about 2038. Right? In you know, thinking deeply on the 2038 thing, I think we've really said everything we need to say about 2038. There may be a few more words about it in the very final episode, but not a tremendous amount. I may take a look at what happened in the airline industry and some of the stuff we did there. And then the last one will just be a summary of the entire thing. Now, in the meantime, the interviews series for this will continue apace. I have two already lined up. We're just trying to arrange dates to do the recordings. And I have another one that we've just started the discussion on. So there, it looks like the interviews will continue, but they'll be in the on-demand section. Now, if you go to www vimeo.com slash on demand slash y2k that's where you'll see all of the interviews and also all of the podcasts that you've been listening to with the videos attached to them if you want to get hold of me you can contact me at pdauger at technobility.com sorry for the throaty voice i've got a cold coming down not covid touch wood. The promo code for the on-demand section, if you wish to use that, there's a 70% discount on it, is Y2K Diager, D-E-J-A-G-E-R. Until the next time, guys, be good, be safe, and we will get through all of this. Take care, guys. <laughs>